Hey everybody, Gatsad here again. I never fail you. Another fantastic guest today. I've got Dr. Charles Murray, a political scientist. He probably doesn't need an introduction. First, let me say hello, Charles. Hello, God. Uh, and I just want to read some of his books. It's not the full list of books, but it's quite a few of them. I think I've put them in chronological order. By the way, you are the F.A. Hayek Chair, Emeritus Scholar in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, so here are some of the books. It all started in 1984, Losing Ground. Then you have In Pursuit of Happiness and Good Government. Then, of course, the one that uh, catapulted you as a household name, The Bell Curve, What It Means to Be a Libertarian, Human Accomplishment. I think I'd like to talk about some of the stuff in that book. Real Education, Four Simple Truths for Bringing America's Schools Back to Reality, Coming Apart, American Exceptionalism, Human Diversity, and then the book that just came out this year, Facing Reality, Two, Two Truths About Race in America. So here's what I thought we would start by doing uh, first, Charles. Uh, I'm going to tell you two personal anecdotes because then we could link it to some of the stuff that has you know gotten you into all sorts of hot water because of some of the positions that you've taken. Uh, and you'll see in a second why I'm setting it up this way. So yesterday I was out with my wife and one of our children. Our other child was home uh, doing some homework. He's nine years old, the son who was with us. And uh, he was he's writing in this, you know, dear diary kind of journal. You know, I, I like this French teacher, but I don't like this teacher. So he's basically recounting his day. And I said to him, you know what would be fun, son, is if we try to do a, a new type of exercise. Why don't I propose a position? And then you think about whether you're for that position or against that position and try to articulate your position in your book, in your diary. And so I thought, I said to him, do you think it's ever okay to lie? And so then he, you know, paused and then wrote, you know, with some grammatical errors and some spelling errors. And the first part of his answer was very much of a consequentialist ethical perspective, which is, you know, if I'm trying to save my family from being harmed, then I think it would be okay to lie. Now, why am I saying that story? Because if I'm not his dad, so first you have father absence. I'm not father absent. Uh, we're hopefully we're giving him good genes to start off with, with life. My, my wife has a degree in mathematics. Uh, I am putting him in a world of ideas where I challenge him as a nine-year-old. So do you think that, and I'm going to tell you a second story first, but rather than babble on for too long before you come in, do you think that just by the fact that you come with the, the lottery of life that allows for that exercise to take place yesterday could resolve some of the things that you otherwise find in your empirical studies? If I understand you correctly, how much difference does it make that your child is getting that kind of question asked of him and that kind of exercise as opposed to if you didn't? As a parent, my instinctive answer is it probably makes a lot of difference. Right. As a person who looks at the data on heritability of traits, um, I have to tone down my expectations for that because what we're talking about is the shared environment for, for kids. The shared environment is a technical term, as you're well aware. So if you have two twins, both twins have the same parents, they have the same socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. That's the shared environment. 
And all of the numbers indicate that the shared environment and your kind of interaction with your child as part of that explains very little of, very, of all sorts of outcomes, all the way from educational attainment to behavioral traits and emotional traits and the rest of it. God, God this is a this has been a long-standing internal contradiction for myself because I have four kids. I really like to think that being a good parent has made a difference to them. I, I like to think that, that I had a mother who was extremely demanding on things like telling the truth, for example. And uh, I, I've often thought that her influence is really important in the way I turned out. That's all my personal gut feeling about this, and I find it very hard to defend that position empirically. You know, uh, I think, I can't remember her, I think it's Judith Harris who, maybe yes. right? so I mean, she speaks to exactly your point in that she has done the heavy lifting in a book called The Nurture Assumption, which would then support exactly what you're saying, which is we, 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 we grant way too much uh, parental causality or the effects of parental causality, uh, where in reality, hence nurture assumption, you know, it's your peers that end up affecting you more. And yet I can't help but feel just like you, even though I, I am a psychologist. Uh, look, there is research that shows that, the, I mean, I'm looking behind you, there are tons of books. There is some work that shows that, you know, a great predictor of how well your children will do is just count how many books are in the household. And I've got something like just in my own study, maybe 400 books. And so based on that metric, my child should grow up to be Einstein. So, I mean, what does the, so the empirical findings suggest that all that we're talking about, it's not supporting any, any of what we're saying? Yeah, the, the, so that the shared environment uh, explains usually on things like IQ and for that matter, life achievement explains, what, uh, 8, 10, 15% of the variance depending on the trait. It's very seldom a lot more than that, especially for the most important outcomes. And it's not just one study that's found this. You have, what, 30, 40, 50 years of twin studies that have found the same thing over and over and over again. And by the way, every time you, you have an example like the one you just gave of, of your interaction with your child, it so happens I'm uh, writing a review of a book about the biography of, of uh, Tom Sowell. Love him. And uh, Tom Sowell, whose career accomplishments are kind of mind-boggling in, in terms of both the intellectual depth and the breadth of the stuff he's done, the guy grew up, no father, his father died before he was born, his mother's an impoverished uh, maid in segregated South Carolina in 1930. She has four other kids. She can't take care of him. She farms him out to, I can go on and on. Tom Sowell experienced a terrible childhood instead of in, in terms of intellectual stimulation. Terrible. Albeit, forgive me for interrupting you, Charles. For, forgive me. I'm so sorry for interrupting you. Albeit, there was an important environmental catalyst. I can't remember the gentleman who took him to the New York public library where he couldn't believe that there's this place where there are all these books cataloged. So in a sense, that is, you know, there's got to be some spark because, I mean, if we lose that hope, then we're screwed, right? Okay, but I'll just finish the point. Sure, sorry. Uh, I don't think that he would say that that was a pivotal moment in which he started to get interested in this stuff. He is, and here's sort of the proof of the pudding as an adolescent. 
he was a high school dropout, but the kicker is the high school he dropped out of was Stuyvesant, <laughs> which is a highly selective right. high school, right. which you only get into if you have stratospherically high test scores. And uh, he obviously recovered from his dropout phase. I'm just making the point, there are so many kids that have really awful childhoods who do extraordinary things. And in fact, there is a school of thought that I suppose you've encountered that, you know what, if you want to do really unusual, have unusual accomplishments in life, happy childhood is not uh, really all that great. Uh, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a testament to that because I grew up in the brutality of the Lebanese Civil War. It wasn't a good thing to be Jewish in Lebanon. We were part of the last bastion of Jews who steadfastly refused to leave the Middle East. That didn't turn out too well. I mean, it turned out well in that we didn't get executed. But uh, I always tell people that, uh, you know, having had a, a childhood that tested my anti-fragility, to use the term of my good friend Nassim Talib, a fellow Lebanese, uh, actually allowed me to have perspective on life. It allows me to, while whatever victim, whatever victimhood I've experienced in my life is part of my identity, it doesn't define me. On the contrary, I'm, I'm defined by the fact that I've overcome all those adversities and I'm able to sit down now and have a conversation with Charles Murray. So I'm not wallowing, sucking my thumb in a corner about boo-hoo what happened to me in my childhood. My parents were kidnapped by Fatah. The things that happened to them, I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemies. And yet we persevered. We came to Canada and we've made a life for ourselves. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let me tell you story two. Uh, although maybe at this point I'm, we're beating the, the horse uh, to death, but or the dead horse. Uh, this is a story that some of my viewers may already be familiar with, and I discuss it in my latest book. Uh, so when I finished my MBA, I'd always planned on going straight for my PhD, uh, but I had one brother, older brother, who was a very successful businessman in Southern California. I had been accepted to UC Irvine among several doctoral programs. And so when I went to visit UC Irvine, he told me, well, why don't you hang out with me for a day or two? And maybe you want to work with me for a few years, put on the proverbial suit, you know, not don't just kind of go through your whole educational trajectory, get some work experience before you go back. And so being the older brother, I, I humored his desire. I hung out with him, but I really wasn't very keen on not pursuing my PhD. Now, my mother catches wind of my brother's attempts to lure me away from academia, if, if only temporarily. And so when I return uh, home to, to visit them at their house in Montreal, she takes me to a side room, you know, very seriously, very concerned, says, well, you know, I, I've, I've heard about what, what happened with your brother. Uh, do you know that if, do you want to be, you want to bring shame to the family? So her perspective was that someone who already had a bachelor's degree in mathematics and computer science and an MBA from a leading university and then dropped out of school would bring shame to the family. Now, of course, you can see why I'm saying this, right? Because the bar is set so high that it would bring shame to drop out of school after these degrees. So now, of course, I didn't pursue my PhD to please my mother's exacting standards. Of course not. But yet that's the environment you grow up in. And again, I can't help but think that all other things equal, ceteris paribus, you know, we want to put the best foot forward for children. And I think if if more, you know, sorry, I'm rambling, but let me just give you another example. It was recently an African-American museum of culture, whatever, put out a a, a, a whole uh, 
poster saying that the scientific method, meritocracy, individual responsibility, logic, reason are all forms of whiteness. Now, contrast that position to that of my mother. One really liberates people to flourish. One puts people in shackles. So it has to be that at some point the environment has some effect, notwithstanding all your empirical studies. Yeah, and well, I will just say, God, we better not get too deep into the adoption studies because you'll get real depressed. <laughs> uh, because you have children adopted at birth into families just like you've described from your background, wonderful parents, intellectually stimulating. Is that good for the adoptive children? Absolutely. Um, I'm happy that they were adopted into those great families. The, do, do the, the adopted kids do a whole lot better than you would be led to expect by their, their background, their, their genetic backgrounds? The answer is no. Got you. But, but let's, that's enough on that. We've, uh, okay, let's move on. We both, uh, want, we both want to believe parents make a difference, and <laughs> so let's just keep on believing it. I got you. Okay, let's. Uh, we'll talk about the latest book in a second. But since you mentioned Thomas Sowell, uh, I think there's a nice thread here for me to explore. Now, you're someone who didn't pursue the traditional academic career, and that, if I'm, unless I'm mistaken, you ne- you've never taken on a, a, a professorial position. Is that is that true, Charles? Correct. Right. That's right. You never even tried to. No. Right. And now, in the case of uh, Tom. Uh, he he certainly did, but then he said, "I've had enough," and then went on to become a you know a Hoover Institution uh, you know fellow and so on. And you've both gone on to publish tons of books, not doing the traditional kind of peer-reviewed journals. Uh, now, is that because? So I, I I don't know how much you can speak for Tom, but is it because you both were going to be tackling the types of topics that would have shackled you had you remained? or had you, in your case, entered academia, and therefore you decided, look, I've got all these things that I want to say. Academia will not afford me the opportunity to do so, so let me take this alternate route. Would that be a fair description of your career paths? Well, uh, just quickly, as it happens, I just reread Tom Sowell's autobiography. So I'm up to speed on Tom's background, and I'm calling him Tom instead of Thomas because I've had the honor of being an acquaintance of his. So... uh, Tom was the opposite. I think Tom would have been very happy being a theoretical uh, e- economist and uh, doing highly technical work. His first book was on Say's Law, uh, a very technical book in Say's Law. And he did start out in academia. He did hold professorships. And, of course, we're talking about the late 60s, and he was in great demand despite his unorthodox political views. Uh, but he grew increasingly disillusioned and disillusioned by in particular things that went on with his interactions with students whereby when he tried to hold their feet to the fire and use exactly the same standards for his black students and his white students and so forth, uh, he drew down a lot of fire from the administration on himself and he became very disillusioned with academia. I was the opposite. Uh, You know, you want to talk about weird ways in which your interests manifest themselves? I can remember as a child, I can't have been more than my early teens, but the oldest, and 
my parents took the Reader's Digest, which back in the day was a very widespread magazine. And I read something about the RAND Institution, which is uh, RAND is one of the very first think tanks. And I remember thinking to myself, that would be really cool. How do you get a job like that? I had that instinctive reaction. That sounded like something I wanted to do. And then when I was in Thailand, first in Peace Corps, and then I was doing research uh, for AID, uh, I really liked the applied research. And the reason I went back to graduate school was uh, in quantitative methods was because I was convinced I had insights about how Thai villages worked that were way smarter than what the anthropologists were saying about how Thai villages worked. And I was absolutely confident I was right, and I couldn't prove it. They would have their their, uh, qualitative narratives, and I had my qualitative narratives, and I wanted to be able to say, I'm right, they're wrong, and here's why. And so that's why I went to graduate school, but I always intended to stay in applied research. Uh, And in fact, I thought I would stay in applied international research because I really enjoyed the prospect of having a career in which I'd spent, you know, I'd spent six years in Thailand, so I'd go spend four years in Nigeria, four years in Brazil or whatever. That was the, the life I saw ahead of me. And I was never, either as an undergraduate or in graduate school, attracted to what I saw of the academic life. Um, I didn't fit in very well. So I never try. Well, so let me assuage any regrets that you may have. Uh, I'm starting to head towards the uh, trajectory of, I won't call him Tom since I've not had the privilege and honor of meeting him. So I'll call him Thomas. Uh, I'm starting to head towards the the Thomas uh, conclusion because, uh, I mean, as as you could imagine, and I'm sure you follow the cultural wars, it is not easy to be the type of outspoken person that I am in academia. Uh, now the reality is that the great majority of students are absolutely lovely. I don't get many of the, you know, the insane woke students in, in, you know, in my environment, but yet there is a stifling bureaucracy. So even if you take out all the wokeness, which you really can't because it, it pervades every email that is sent out, uh, there is a lack of velocity of how quickly things happen, right? So we we hold a task force meeting meeting to set up a potential task force to discuss the feasibility of having coffee in the faculty lounge. Well, the amount of money and time that it took to have the task force about the task force to hold the coffee meeting probably cost the university $8 million and the coffee would have cost $3. So so one of the reasons why I love doing what I do in terms of speaking to people like yourself and others is that there is a, a quickness in the discussion of ideas, right? I mean, I could have a chat with you now in, in four hours, I could post this, and then there'll be 25,000 people who hopefully really enjoyed our chat. Now, that doesn't, in, in, in no way does that denigrate or, you know, uh, attack the, the beauty of the peer-reviewed process. It's part of what I do. I love doing good science, good social science. Uh, 
but it's slow, right? You a peer-reviewed paper, you might go through four rounds before it is published. By the from the time of inception of the idea to the time that people read it, it might be four or five years. And then if in five years later, fifty people have cited it, then you're super ecstatic about how incredible that paper was. Whereas how many people have read your books? So I think one of the things that I dislike about academia is that while yes, it's a place to create ideas, the dissemination of ideas is not nearly as fast as I would like it to be. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, and also there is, uh, as far as I can tell, a lot of pressure on young academics to remain within fairly narrow topics. Oh, yeah. And so I wrote uh, Losing Ground, which is still in print uh, 30-odd years after it was published. Uh, I wrote it in my late 30s, and it was published in 1984 when I was 41. And um, I would never have been encouraged in a university to take on that look at social policy uh, in the Great Society in the 1970s. The, the, all, the, all the peer pressure on me would have been to, to, to work in smaller steps and to, to uh, work my way up. But the fact is, and I know this from my work in human accomplishment, that we are at our very peak in terms of both a combination of experience and uh, of, uh, of talent in our 40s. Uh, it depends on the specific field. If you're a particle physicist or a pure mathematician, we're talking the first half of your 20s. Yeah, right. Doing your best work. But, but for social scientists, uh, we don't have those demands on us. But, but, but the, the time that that intellectually gifted people who are in scholarly pursuits, the best time for them to be applying uh, their, their, their very best insights. And it's about the age that I was working on, on, uh, on losing ground. And that's the age at which a lot of academics are still assistant professors and desperately trying to get tenure by getting enough peer-reviewed articles. Out. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, human accomplishments in a second. Uh, but your, your, when you started your, your, your point, you talked about sort of what I would call stay in your lane professors, right? The, and, and I actually talk about this briefly uh, in my next book where I'm talking about the, the virtues of uh, variety seeking. And specifically, I talk about intellectual variety seeking, the idea that there are so many wonderful intellectual landscapes that I want to visit that I don't want to be a guy who's doing plus epsilon research, right? So let, let's do another little thing that, you know, very few people will ever read, but then I will be known as the guy in this field, in this incredibly specialized. Now, of course, we need to develop tools of specializations when we were getting the training, but then once I am trained, my goal is to just look for interesting problems, completely unencumbered by disciplinary boundaries. And so in my case, I've published in medicine, in consumer behavior, in evolutionary theory. I've published a paper on uh, applying evolutionary theory in political marketing, right? So as a matter of fact, that which I would consider consider maybe the most laudable aspects of my CV is held against me as somebody who's got kind of this frivolity. Why aren't you more focused, Dr. Saad? I've been told that actually by schools who are interested in hiring me away, but they said, but unfortunately you don't have just one research stream. To me, that seems insane because at the same time, the schools from the other side of their mouth say we support 
interdisciplinarity, yet you do everything but support interdisciplinarity, right? Yeah, and, and, if you're, and again, you have to distinguish between what goes on in the hard sciences and what goes on if you're a social scientist. Uh, if you are a hard scientist and like a particle physicist, <clears throat> you are trying to make the next increment in a vast edifice of knowledge that it's really important to be exactly right, right. and that the vast edifice itself has enormous, uh, you know, no one person is going to do the whole story thing. If you're a social scientist in the 2020s and you're a graduate student, and let's say you are in sociology, you better be taking a lot of courses in population genetics. You better be taking a lot of courses in evolutionary psychology. Uh, you'd better be, uh, another thing you ought to be doing is you should not be cloistered in a, uh, in a university office. If you're a sociologist, and you want to talk about, let's say, the political uh, sociology of the current polarization, well, guess what? You better know what people are like who live in Topeka, Kansas, right. or are plumbers, or are farmers, or are the, the MAGA people who voted for Trump. You better have a gut-level appreciation of what life is like for them, as well as the very narrow academic circles in which you, you live. So if the particle physicist is at the Princeton Advanced Institute and doesn't know anybody who's not at Princeton, so what? Right. <laughs> it has no effect yeah. on, 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 on what he's doing. Uh, if you are a Princeton sociologist, and the only people I actually know really well are your kind of people in Princeton, you got a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, that speaks to another point, which is, uh, I mean, and again, in your case, since you didn't go the traditional academic route, you, you, you haven't necessarily faced it. Until very recently, few professors would go out of their way to create a, a program of public engagement, right? Where, whereby, you know, now we've got all these incredible tools where we can, you know, uh, have a megaphone for our voices to be heard, right? I mean, my show, I still can't believe the number of people that, that watch it. Or if I go on Joe Rogan, then forget about the number of people who watch that, right? I mean, it's more than all of the mainstream media combined. And yet I think most academics uh, are still very reticent to engage in that. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's a ego defensive mechanism, whereby they actually don't think they can pull it off, right? I mean, it's one thing to be a very rigorous uh, scientist in your lab, whether you're an experimental psychologist or a particle physicist. It's another thing to go for three hours on Joe Rogan and, and make whatever you do seem exciting to 20 million people. Now, one doesn't doesn't supersede the other. In an ideal world, you should be able to do both. But the, the, the academic absolutely knows that he or she has mastered the former, but can't certainly do the latter. And therefore, they, they, they castigate it as, you know, it's... Uh, and by the way, I, I've had, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating because you probably haven't heard it, Charles. Uh, I discussed this in, in uh, my latest book. Uh, I went to Stanford. Uh, I was invited to Stanford Business School, sort of the, the mecca of academic elitism, uh, to give a talk, a scientific talk. And the gentleman who was hosting me uh, had taken me out the night before. And uh, we started talking about the fact that I was appearing, you know, in the upcoming future on Joe Rogan. And so he kind of looks at me with disdain and says, yeah, well, you know, at Stanford, we don't support that. I said, you don't support what exactly? He said, well, you know, we don't we don't do research so that it's sexy enough that it could appear on Joe Rogan. 
I said, well, I don't do research so that I can appear on Joe Rogan, but if we're in the business of creating knowledge and disseminating knowledge, you would think that appearing on Joe Rogan would be something that you would highly support because 20 million people are going to listen to my thing with Joe Rogan. And he was very, very disdainful of that. So I think the second problem then becomes, number one, it's ego defensive. Number two is the universities haven't set up as part of their uh, incentive. They haven't incentivized people to go out. It's not on your CV that you've done this. Uh, your journal articles are, maybe your books, depending on the discipline, but appearing on Joe Rogan, that that's worth nothing. Exactly. Do you think we can solve this? There, there's, there's, I think, a couple of different things at work, and one I sympathize with, which is a lot of uh, very, very good social scientists, people whose work I use and respect, they wouldn't be good on TV, they wouldn't be good on Joe Rogan, they wouldn't that's just not part of their repertoire that they're good at. Okay, I get that. That's all right. But what drives me nuts uh, in academia is people deliberately writing in ways which make it as hard as possible for their readers to know what they're saying. And uh, and that, somebody, you know, a smart person who's, they can do something about that. They don't have to be charming. They just have to write clear English. But talk about... Uh, negative incentives, I have written peer-reviewed articles, all right? And I've gone through the peer-reviewed process, and I have, in fact, gotten criticism from the reviewers that my language was too informal. <laughs> and by that they meant I was, I was using active verbs, I was using short sentences, I was trying to communicate what I was saying, but but they wanted me to make it more bureaucratic is what they really wanted. They wanted me to make it the language more academic. And that's just so pathetic because you think you look around, who are the social scientists that have enormous influence? They are the Steve Pinkers of the world who write beautifully, who know the literature, who can say it in non-technical ways but accurately, those are the people <laughs> that are having an impact. And this, I, by the way, I would include people who I don't like as, uh, as, as in terms of what they've written, Stephen Jay Gould. Right. Part of the reason Stephen Jay Gould was so effective, particularly in that Meritrash's book called The Mismeasure of Man. Right. Um, but boy, he wrote like a dream. And, and and he was extremely clear, and and that should be something that the universities applaud, without even if it. I, I guess I'm thinking of a distinction between what you experienced regarding Joe Rogan and Stanford, and then discouraging you. I've had people discourage me from going on certain shows because. I shouldn't be associated with those kinds of people. Okay. And, uh, okay, I can kind of sympathize, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I can kind of sympathize with that as to why they're worried about that, but not writing clearly that there's no excuse. I think I've got a theory that I'd love to uh, see what you think of it. And actually, I usually use this theory when I'm criticizing postmodernism, uh, but it applies more generally to mm -hmm. opaque and obscurantist uh, writing, academic writing. So I think that in the same way that economists suffer from physics envy, right? The idea is that I need to create 
this mathematization of economics for me to be taken seriously as an economist. So it becomes tons of mathematical stuff that is completely decoupled from reality. But boy, the closed axioms within that model are beautiful, but they describe nothing. But who cares? I've got a lot of Greek letters. And I'm not intimidated by Greek letters. I've got a background in mathematics, right? So, so because they need to cater to their physics envy, uh, they need to kind of walk with a rigorous walk, right? Now, I think that uh, a lot of the folks over there in the humanities are looking at... <coughs> You're right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, no worries. They're, they're looking at those folks in physics and biology and neuroscience and mathematics and saying, how come they're getting all the attention? Well, they're getting all the attention because when you read a math paper, you're unless you speak that impenetrable language, you're lost within the first sentence, right? I mean, you literally can't get past sentence one. In physics, maybe there's a few words before you get lost. In mathematics, there's nothing. It's a language of its own. Well, how about we, meaning now the, the, the charlatans in, in, in postmodernism and so on, how about we create an impenetrable language that is so impenetrable that it must be profound, right? And so I, I've pitched this theory to many folks and they've said, I think you're exactly right. Well, then I found proof for my, uh, the veracity of my theory. It came in a conversation between Michel Foucault and John Searle, the American philosopher, where John Searle asks Michel Foucault, how come when I chat with you privately, I seem to be able to follow what you're saying, but when I read your works, it's so much more opaque and difficult to understand. And, and, and maybe we should thank him for being honest. Michel Foucault responds, well, in France, you know, you've got you've to have a lot of stuff that's impossible to understand. Otherwise, people don't take you seriously. Aha! I was right all along. So I think, again, there is a there is a epistemological insecurity that comes in some of the fields in the humanities and social sciences where opaqueness and impenetrable implies profundity. I absolutely agree with you. Oh, there, there you go. With the postmodernists, in almost there is no other explanation because the things they are trying to say, if you finally manage to parse them out, are really simple. Exactly. Uh, there anyway. you go. All right. Uh, so do you want to just briefly, because I want I want to be able to promote your latest book. So we're going all over the place. We'll come back to more personal stuff. The two main uh, uncomfortable truths in your book are, number one, there are cognitive differences between the, the races and there are uh, differences in, you know, uh, proclivity to engage in criminality across the two races. Is that, did I summarize that correctly? Yeah, that's basically true. <laughs> now, I was I, did, I, I didn't prepare. I wanted to read you a quote from my book. Uh, I don't have it, so I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, it. It's a classic kind of setup where I read a quote from someone who said, who's saying something like, well, you know, I'm ashamed to say that when I hear footsteps coming behind me uh, on a street. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know who is the rabid white supremacist racist who said that? Jesse Jackson. Boom! Boom! So, so how can we get people to recognize that, you know, empirical facts really just don't, truly don't care about your... So, so we could talk about the technical details, but as you said, and as I agree, that's boring. We, you know, you've done it a million times. I'm interested in the cognitive and emotional obstacles that cause people to put erect barriers to at least engage these ideas. Do you have any thoughts about how we can do that? Well, what we do know, God, is that we have seen a really remarkable change just over the last few years 
in the degree to which people are saying facts don't matter. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm sort of speechless because I'm trying to say, what do I say next? But let's go to the issues that are involved with critical race theory and the allegations of systemic racism. Uh, Well, if you're going to allege systemic racism, there are ways to support that statement. There are ways in which you need to allow it to be falsified. There has to be some criteria uh, by which we can say, okay, this makes uh, sense in terms of the allegations of systemic racism. This is inconsistent with it. And what we have seen is a very open statements that, no, we have no basis for you to falsify this. There are no yardsticks out there that we accept as valid, which would be persuasive evidence that we're wrong about the allegations of systemic racism. It, the, that we, have, we are asserting a reality, anecdotally, rhetorically, without numbers of any kind, and with statements such as the one that I think Kendi makes, <clears throat> that standardized tests are this the most vicious and, and effective of all weapons to to uh, to oppress blacks. That should be a falsifiable statement. It is a falsifiable statement. It's not accepted that it's falsifiable. So anyway, the, people ask me why I wrote this book. I wrote this book because. The departure from reality in the rhetoric about systemic racism was so complete and it was so thoroughly bought into by the white elites um, that I said, there aren't too many people who are in a position to push back against this. If you are a 39-year-old assistant professor in a university, you cannot write a book saying this is bullshit. Yeah. And with a lot of evidence behind it, you won't get tenure. Even if you're a tenured professor, you'd probably be in trouble. And and I'm one of the few people at a point in my career where there's nothing they can do to me. And so I was able to do it, so I wrote it. Uh, But it was a sort of cri de coeur about someone who, who believes that that it's the exchange of evidence and the argumentation based on on the evidence that enables us to make progress. And so I I wrote the book as sort of a the last attempt to to draw this dialogue back into something that resembled a debate over facts. Well, you mentioned at the start of your talk about, uh, you know, the falsification principle, right? So the Popperian uh, epistemology. I would actually add to what you said. It's not just that you can't falsify it according to their progressive, quote, epistemology. That which would be proof of its falsifiability is actually taken as proof of their position. And let me give you... So so it's a form of intellectual terrorism that's that's like an, an, a nested mind blank i'm not going to say the word the f word okay so and let, let me let me give two examples for you uh example one a doctoral student in israel decides that she wants to do a 
empirical study demonstrating that the IDF, the Israeli Def Defense Force, engages in uh, systemic or systematic, pick the word, uh, rape of Palestinian women. So she goes out to do that study. She's, she's a Jewish uh, uh, woman herself. I only say this because it's a form of progressive self-flagellation. I'm really bad. I'm really bad, right? Uh, and so she goes out to do the research. To her dismay, she finds out that there isn't a single documented case of Israeli soldiers raping Palestinian women. Boy, that sounds like a falsification of your position. That really sounds like amazing falsification data. No, it actually demonstrated, Charles, how evil the Israeli soldiers were because they so othered the Palestinian women that they weren't even worthy of rape. Okay, this is not this is not God sad satire because I'm pretty proficient at satire. Okay, this is a real doctoral student who I believe won an award for that paper. It, by the way, it's all referenced in the Parasitic Mind. You can go check it out if you don't believe the veracity of the story. Story two. Story. Well, the sad thing is, I do believe you, and I'm laughing about something which, in its essence, is very sad. I mean, because you're talking about allegations of rape. But I'm laughing because it's so crazy. It's insane. And that's why, and I, 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 next I'd like to talk about what is it that we can bottle about, whether it be Thomas Sowell or you or others who stand up and are to be counted, how can we bottle that kind of courage? But let's leave that for a second. Story two, Canadian student at Queen's University wants to demonstrate that there is systemic Love that word. Put it everywhere. It's an elixir of life. There is systemic Islamophobia in Canadian society. It's rampant. It's everywhere. It's in every nook and cranny. So she decides to don a hijab, I think, for 18 days because she's going to now document that, you know, she's, you know, she's being, a you know, she's being uh, raped everywhere and she's being accosted and insulted. She finds out that the Canadians were unbelievably kind, gracious, sweet, tolerant, everything that she didn't think. Did that falsify her position, Charles? No. They're so full of hate inside towards Muslims that they overcompensate by a manifest kindness. So their kindness, their tolerance, their politeness was exactly a manifestation of Islamophobia. Once you've reached that level of epistemological terrorism, you've lost your capacity to reason. It's You're dead. You're finished, right? Yeah, and... I'm thinking of listeners who are saying, oh, God, is it's, he's exaggerating. And it's not. It's really, you aren't. Um, be, because it, it's, in, for example, there's benevolent sexism. Yes. Benevolent sexism is men being respectful yeah. of women, of of being encouraging and helpful, <laughs> being, a gent, being a gentleman yeah. with regard to women. And so that's evident of, of sexism. And uh, of course, with racism in the uh, just as in the Islamic example, uh, the people who are respectful of their black colleagues who are white, uh, they're overcompensating, and uh, they are because they're overcompensating. It is revealing their inner uh, hostility toward blacks and so forth. It is everywhere in every topic. You remember. Pat Moynihan's phrase, uh, everyone's entitled to his own, own opinion, but not to his own facts. Sure. A wonderful line. That's outdated. Everybody is entitled to his own facts. <laughs> there, is no, 
there is no common body of, of <coughs> which we can come together on and say, okay, let's fight over this. But there are rules for fighting. There's playing fair and there's not playing fair. And, and so that was, that's the only way forward. I mentioned Steve Pinker earlier, his current book on rationality, which I have not read, read reviews of. Uh, he's another person who is trying desperately to retrieve the situation. I don't think it's going to happen very soon. Yeah. I think it's going to happen eventually. Just has to. Uh, we're in the Thermidorian phase, perhaps, of the revolution. Uh, well, maybe we're approaching the Thermidorian. Uh, but right now, it's pretty bleak. So what, what do you think it will take for us to redress the ship? I mean, sure, we can have uh, people who are outspoken, who are irreverent, who do have large followings, who, you know, will bring people to the side of team reason. But that's a slow process. Do you think there's there's a way for us to have a, a cat? I mean, in a sense, Donald Trump was hated precisely because he was that cataclysmic sort of doorstop that was ending some of the the way the fulcrum was shifting and he comes along and the party's going to end the swap is going to be dried and all this kind of stuff and therefore we have to to get rid of him because the party won't go the the epistemological terrorism and so on won't go on is there a way for is this going to be a 50 year battle where eventually we win team reason or is it could it happen much more quicker and if so how let's let's restrict the conversation for a moment to the social sciences, okay. because that's something that we both know a lot about, and we both know those communities pretty well. I've had some second thoughts since I published uh, Human Diversity in early 2020. And in Human Diversity, I argue that the social sciences are going to be revolutionized by growing genetic and neuroscientific knowledge. And that this is not something we should be scared of. This is going to be, it should be a very exciting time to be a social scientist because finally we are going to have tools at our disposal which enable us to be a lot closer to real scientists than we've ever had a chance to be before. And I, I go on to try to make that case with regard to the study of uh, sex differences and race differences and class differences. I still believe in the long-term outcome which it'll revolutionize it. But I think it's going, there's going to be an interregnum, sort of a period of quiescence. And let me give you a specific example that I think we're already seeing. One of the main topics for those people who are engaged in social policy is the role of the family. <laughs> we talked about it ourselves at the beginning of the yeah. session, but, but what the main, the main uh, social policy debate has been, to what extent can you use interventions from outside to compensate for socioeconomic disadvantage and thereby provide the same outcomes that are enjoyed by kids who are in high SES backgrounds and, and, and stable family backgrounds and so forth. And the optimists have been those who have said it's, these are basically environmentally caused uh, differences. They're grounded in poverty, in, uh, in education, in other socioeconomic factors, we can we can compensate for those. In uh, for a long time, you had very discouraging data from their point of view about the effectiveness of those outside interventions. But it could be continued to be argued. Well, we'll get it right the next time and the next. Uh, 
project to help disadvantaged kids through a mentoring program or through educational research. Next time we'll get it right, we'll, we'll go with early childhood, infant uh, interventions, and so forth. The results empirically have never been encouraging. In fact, on the contrary, the results have been quite minor, and they've also, you know, you can get results on exit tests. They attenuate very quickly over time. But the, the, the debate went on. Now, as the, as the knowledge about the role of genetics in a lot of these traits increases, the argument is already showing signs of shifting. There was a publication of a book just a few months ago by Catherine Page Harden, um, the title of which I don't think I have right. But anyway, the, the, the basic thesis of the book was she says, I'm a progressive. I am in favor of social justice. I also acknowledge the science uh, on genetic, role, the role of genetics in, in uh, behavioral traits. But that's okay because I can hold these positions and we can advance the, advance the cause of social, social justice the, uh, by incorporating this information. And by the way, I don't share her politics. I share her, her view that there's no conflict between assimilating this information and uh, making use of it, even though you were a person on the left. Fine. I think that it's not going to work out that way. I think that people on the left who have been most adamant that these things can be fixed through environmental interventions are going to have to continue their work at this point in an environment where they understand there is widespread acknowledgement that they're wrong. <laughs> that, that, not the, that nothing can be done, but, well, let me give, give you a specific example. Sure. I think it's going to become increasingly evident that if there were social policies that could increase the proportion of children who grow up in stable two-parent families wouldn't raise their IQs, but it would lower the delinquency rate. Right. It would increase the emotional stability rate because if there are some things where where a two-parent family does seem to make a difference, it's in those those kinds of characteristics. People on the left are not going to be able to reconcile themselves to policy interventions with the purpose of increasing marriage. Right. They just won't do it. And so even though the understanding of this new knowledge gives us new insights into what needs to be done to decrease the level of child suffering in a lot of these areas, the solutions are going to be one which are fundamentally unacceptable to, uh, to people of a certain political position. And the response is not going to be able to be, in response to a book like Kathleen Page Harden's, they aren't going to be able to be, she's wrong about the science. She's right. And she is right about science, which is increasingly consensually accepted among people who know the data. So they aren't going to be able to say she's wrong. What they are going to do is just keep quiet about it. Right. And I think that in, in some ways, the, the, uh, the, the dropping of the SAT uh, for admission to colleges as a requirement is another indication of this. 
the, the data are quite clear about the SAT. It is not biased in favor of white affluent kids. Despite all the stories right. about, oh, they get this test prep and that jacks up their scores by 200 points, and the other kids don't get all of that stuff has been looked at with a fine tooth comb. All of the roles of, uh, of test prep and of socioeconomic status, they've all been examined in every case. The best predictor of your SAT score at age 18 are cognitive tests taken at very young ages. And, and as we get polygenic scores for IQ, it's going to turn out that what best predicts your SAT scores at age 18, regardless of your socioeconomic status, is your, your polygenic score, which is establishable at birth. Right. Okay, so if that's the case, I think that people will say, we're still going to drop the SAT because we don't like it. I think that's really where we're at that. And it's going to take a very long time to recover from that sort of thing. With with one final parting shot on this, Scott, you know who suffers the most from getting rid of the SAT? The really smart kid from a working class family, yeah. he or she, black or white or Latino or whatever, who had as a high SAT score a way of sticking up their hand and saying to the admissions office, not only am I the right color that you're looking for, for your admissions, I'm really smart. Right. And, and to take that away is a huge loss. Let me, a lot of stuff to unpack there. Uh, thank you for that answer. Uh, one, one small exception uh, that I'm going to, well, one small point I'm going to take exception with, maybe it was a Freudian slip. You said uh, for social scientists to become real scientists, well, I, I don't think that social scientists are not real scientists. Maybe you meant to say natural scientists. I think the assignment well, real, but never mind. What, sorry, what'd you say? I didn't mean real. You didn't mean real. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I think a scientist is anyone who uses the liberating and breathtaking tools of the scientific method. You can be an English lit professor and be a scientist, and I can explain how if you'd like. You can be a historian and be a very rigorous scientist. You could be a sociologist or a political scientist and be a very serious scientist. What makes you a scientist is not whether you study the atom. As a matter of fact, Auguste Comte, when he came up with his hierarchy of the sciences, placed sociology at the top because he argued that it's a lot more difficult to study uh, complex creatures called humans and social systems than it is to study the crystallography structure of diamonds. I mean, he didn't give that example, but I'm, I'm filling that in. So I don't think that there is anything in the epistemology of social science that makes it less sciencey. Here's, here's how it is less sciencey. It is less sciencey when you stop adhering to the scientific method, when you allow ideology to parasitize your pursuit of science, right? So, so, so I don't, I, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a project with one of my graduate students right now where we're going to be testing some of these ideas where I can take the exact same epistemology and methodology, but if I couch it in a language that sounds sciencey, like we're going to study the brain imaging of a chimpanzees for fear arousal, and I ask you how sciencey that is, then you're going to say, oh, that's, that's sciencey. He's wearing a white lab coat. If I give you the exact same structure of the problem, but I say we're going to study how consumers respond, respond to fear appeals, 
Nothing has changed. The epistemology hasn't changed. The, the, method, the methodology hasn't changed. The data analysis approaches haven't changed. Well, that doesn't sound, that sounds like it's business school applied stuff. So I think there is a bias whereby people think something is sciencey or not, depending on certain accoutrements. So I don't think you need to feel any shame because you're a political scientist. You should feel shame if you let your ideology temper with how truthful you are in the pursuit of science. Does that make sense? Did I make a good defense of social I, science? I think I'm appropriately rebuked uh, in one <laughs> sense. And for, for all the reasons you gave, you can have rigor in the social sciences just as you have rigor in any other. Uh, I guess the way that I would still say I, am, I have uh, physics envy uh, is that you know, what you're trying to do with your analyses is reduce the amount of noise as much as possible to increase the accuracy of your predictions. And, uh, and it's really tough. And so in the social sciences, yeah, it is really, really hard. So that with uh, physics, you can predict years ahead of time these bizarre things that black holes will do, and lo and behold, 30 years later, it's verified down to the last nanometer of, uh, of precision. And in my line of work, if you can explain 40% of the barriers... You're, you're celebrating. Yeah. So, so uh, there is a way in which the hard sciences... We are going to, we're going to improve the precision of our tools a whole lot. Right. because of the neuroscientific and genetic uh, information. So that was going to be my second point that I was going to talk about. So I'm, I'm delighted that you mentioned, of course, neuroscience and so on. But earlier, you mentioned two words that are very dear to my heart. You've said evolutionary psychology, which of, you, you may know that I, uh, with all due modesty, I, I founded the new discipline called evolutionary consumption, which is the application of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study consumer behavior. And I define consumer behavior very broadly. It's not just Coca-Cola and Starbucks. We consume friendships, we consume religion, we consume popular culture, everything is consumatory. Uh, and so one of the things that I've argued, and here I learned this word from E.O. Wilson in his unbelievable book in the late 90s, Consilience, right? I love that book. Isn't it unbelievable? Anybody who's listening to this conversation, when this conversation ends, you go out, you buy that book immediately. Uh, well, consilience, of course, you know the meaning, Charles, but let me mention it from our, our readers. It's unity of knowledge, right? It's, it's the fact that you could make links between the arts, the social sciences, the natural sciences in a true epistemological, grand interdisciplinary way. Well, I argue in, in my work, but more generally for the social sciences, hence to link back to your point, that the only way that the social sciences are ever going to reach the same level of epistemological prestige as the natural sciences is if they have an organizing framework that drives their knowledge in the same way that the natural sciences do. And there's only one game in town. It's called evolutionary theory. You can't study human behavior without recognizing the evolutionary forces that have shaped this organ called the human mind. And yet generations of 100 years of students have perfectly studied sociology, economics, consumer psychology, political science, and the rest of it without ever uttering the word biology. Now, imagine how insane that is. There are 2 million, uh, I don't know, the, I can't remember the exact number, but let's, let's go with 2 million sexually reproducing species. 
1,999,999, you would never dare study without ever invoking the evolutionary mechanisms that led to the evolution of that species. But there is this one species that exists on the supra plane of magic called non-biology. So I can study political science, I can study consumer behavior, I can study economics, fully detached, fully decoupled from my biological heritage. Once that lacuna is, is closed, once that problem is resolved, then I think we will be as prestigious as natural sciences. Dr. Murray, what do you think of that position? I agree 100%. <laughs> My God, we're supposed to disagree on something, man. You're not making this fun. No, no. I'm... <laughs> I see the uh, human uh, uh, diversity, uh, which, by the way, I am very fond of. Uh, it, it went into a black hole. It was not reviewed in any major uh, outlets and, and uh, it is a dense long book but anyway it starts out by saying the social sciences have been scared stiff of biology and uh, and I want to talk about the ways in which these links are being made but I also explicitly say in the first chapter I'm going to give very little attention to evolutionary psychology and I said the reason I'm not going to do it is because I have learned that as soon as you do that, your critics jump on that because they can say, oh, it's all just so stories. Exactly. You have these people who have a political agenda and they observe a trait in human beings now and they come up with these, these stories for why it had to be that way. It has been a really effective strategy, God. They really get a lot of mileage out of that. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to talk about what we've learned about human differences that exist as opposed to the role of evolution. But here's where, in the long run, your position is not only correct, it will prevail. Uh, and, and that is that what we're really doing is rediscovering human nature. And if there is something that people have known, human beings have known throughout human history until the last hundred years, it was that there was a thing called human nature. And it was hard to specify, it was hard to define in lots of ways, but there are certain ways in which the human animal has underlying instincts, underlying drives, and the rest of it. And the fact is that despite the cheap shots that are taken about Just So stories, enormous progress has been made already in spelling out uh, the evolutionary psychology, uh, the mechanisms at work, and the genetics come feeding into this now are going to provide ways to take the increasing power of the evolutionary psychological theory and infuse it with concrete evidence of, of evolution that's taken place. So <clears throat> your task as to some degree mine is to live long enough to see ourselves vindicated and to read the full page ads in the New York times that are going to be taken out by the blank slaters saying <laughs> we were wrong. We were wrong. I'm sure it'll happen, but that's what it's I call them, by the way, flat earthers of the human mind. Uh, that's that's a good phrase. You like that one? I think I first mentioned it in my chat with uh, Danielle Dennett, who was uh, on my show a few years ago. Uh, let me mention the just so story point, and then what? Maybe one or two other questions. Do we still have about ten minutes? Can you grant me about ten more minutes? Oh, sure. oh great! Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, number. I despise the just story attack more than any of the other lines of attacks because while they are all, let me be undiplomatic, 
profoundly imbecilic. None is more imbecilic than the just story one. And let me explain why. And, and, and you know, I've written scientific papers on this. I, it's in chapter seven of my latest book. So one of the unbelievably powerful tools of evolutionary thinking is this idea of nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So for example, if I want to demonstrate to you that something is an adaptation, how can I go about building a tsunami of evidence that makes it incontrovertible that my position is veridical? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you cross-cultural data, right? So, I mean, if I show you that the hourglass figure that men prefer applies as much in the Hadza tribe or the Yanamomo tribe in the Amazon as it does in every other culture that's been studied, that's already compelling evidence. But I'm going to get you cross-cultural data. I'm going to get you cross-temporal data across time periods. I'm going to get you cross-disciplinary data, cross-methodology data. So it's 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 more than just the triangulate the typical triangulation. It's a it's a triangulation on steroids using temporal periods, human cultures, disciplinary approaches, and so on, so that the data becomes so incontrovertible that you it's unassailable. So it it. It genuinely, it epistemologically offends me when these imbeciles say that evolutionary psychologists just sit around sipping cognac with, you know, smoking pipes, just pontificating these just so stories, when the reality is that the evidentiary threshold that we set before we establish that something is an adaptation is actually a lot more than all the other sciences. But apparently, because we're talking about something that happened in the distal past, it must be post hoc. In which case, I tell people, well, you better advise astrophysicists that they are fake scientists because they're they're theorizing about something that happened way before human evolution. So they must be fake scientists too. So it is so galling because that's one of the main places where I haven't been able to get my colleagues to concede. So I, I, I wait just like you for the articles to come out saying that we were proven right and we're vindicated, but I fear that human vanity won't allow it to happen anytime soon. What do you think? I, I think the uh, I think the first break in uh, Dyke will be uh, with regard to sex differences, right? Because <clears throat> the first genetic race differences is such an explosive topic. It is so taboo that it'll probably be quite a while before we know nearly as much about uh, population differences as we know about uh, sex differences. But with sex differences. An awful lot of progress is being made. Uh, one of the, the healthiest aspects of this that some of the most brilliant and most productive scholars in this are women. And when, when we're talking about the neuroscience of, uh, of the human brain and uh, the, the lateralization of the brain, sex differences in the lateralization of the brain, just wonderful work has been done, and it ties in it ties in with evolutionary psychology in really specific ways that if you have certain <clears throat> things that were clearly different from males and females in the course of evolution in terms of their evolutionary fitness, uh, such as, for example, the, the, uh, the, the role of women in nurturing children, uh, which is to say, if you were a woman who didn't love small babies, you were unlikely to pass on your genes. 
uh, and that has an effect over time. It's fun for the women tend to be nurturers of small children. You, you can tie that into all sorts of very specific things that we can see now increasingly, yeah. not completely, but increasingly in all sorts of, of things within the brain, yeah. which males and females are different in the encoding of memory, in the encoding of the emotional response to memory, and so forth and so on. This is an area in which, as I was doing human diversity, I sense that there is a, a very broad consensus among neuroscientists in this regard. Uh, are there any? Are there any? Uh, uh, who, yeah, yeah. Cordelia Fine, who herself is yeah. not a neuroscientist, she can write a book called Testosterone Rex, which gets all sorts of prizes and bestseller lists and adulatory reviews <clears throat> in uh, the New Yorker and the New York Times. But I asked one neuroscientist, I said, how come it's so hard to find technical critiques of uh, her books in the literature? <laughs> he said, because nobody pays any attention to them. <laughs> it's so obviously nonsense. Yeah. And, and so within, within neuroscience, you already are getting an ally. By you, I mean evolutionary psychology. Yeah. You're already getting an ally that is going to make your already strong case absolutely impregnable. Yeah, well, I think so. Uh, uh, to, to add to what we're saying, uh, there is a distinction in uh, in levels of analyses, scientific analyses or scientific uh, explanations between what's called proximate explanations and ultimate explanations. Proximate explanations is where much of science operates. It's the how and the what of a phenomenon. And that's perfectly fine. Most Nobel Prizes have been won at the proximate level. What evolution, evolutionary theory does, in addition to explaining proximate mechanisms, is it adds a completely new level of analysis, which is called the ultimate explanation. This is not ultimate in the, in the superior sense. It's the ultimate. It's ultimate in the unfolding of the Darwinian causation all the way up to the original why. So if you talk about, say, why do men and women exhibit sex differences when it comes to the romantic infidel the, the romantic jealousy that they experience when it comes to sexual infidelity? Well, we can say, oh, men have higher testosterone levels, therefore they react more aggressively. Well, that may, may or may not be true, but that is a proximate explanation. The ultimate explanation is that men have had to recurringly deal with the threats of paternity uncertainty, and therefore they have evolved the emotional, cognitive, and behavioral systems that would cause them to be reacting very adversely to the to the possible threat of their woman sleeping with another guy because we're a biparental species. I don't want to raise the really sexy gardener's uh, child for the next 20 years. So it's not that proximate explanations are lower than ultimate. It's that you need both levels of analyses to fully tick off explaining a phenomenon. Once all social scientists recognize what I just said the last two minutes, we'll have a revolution in the social sciences because we will be armed with much bigger epistemological tools for full explanations of phenomena. Yeah. <clears throat> and your, your, your uh, <clears throat> ultimate explanation in the specific example you gave of uh, guys wanting to uh, be confident that they're the real father, guess what? If you are a guy who doesn't pay any attention to whether you're the real father, you're less likely. To <laughs> it's it's not difficult to explain exactly. Or or if you're attracted to, I mean, it's not the patriarchy that 
doesn't make me uh, be attracted to Betty White. It's because guys who were, you know, consistently attracted only to Betty White types did not pass on those genes when they mated yeah. with postmenopausal women. Like it doesn't take a huge evolutionary biologist to understand that mechanism. Uh, okay, a la- couple of questions, uh, personal, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, question one, which I kind of promised that I would ask earlier. Guys like you, Thomas Soul, others outspoken guys, is that just the unique genetic combinations of your personhoods that make you honey badgers and there is nothing we can do to teach that to others? Or is there a seminar we can go to called Charles Murray slash Thomas uh, Sowell, How to Be a Honey Badger 101? Which, where do we fall? Well, I think that Thomas Sowell and I are quite different in this regard. Sorry about my voice. No worries. <clears throat> well, you're both courageous in tackling issues that other people wouldn't. That's what I okay. mean. You're similar. In my case, um, my wife says that I am convinced every time I write a book that this time I'm going to say it so clearly and so humanely that people can't possibly disagree and that all say, now I understand. I really do not go into a book um, saying, oh, I'm really going to get their backs up with this one. And in fact, I've been criticized for both human diversity and uh, facing reality for soft peddling things. Of, of, and I did because I wanted uh, to write. I want to write books that are read by people who don't agree with me. And what that amounts to these days, there's no way that I can appeal to the woke. You know, uh, I'm the Antichrist and Satanist and that sort of thing. But but center left, I, I, th- that's my ideal reader. They read the New York Times. Uh, and they believe what they read in the op-ed pages, uh, but they also read the science section. And, and so I want to reach them. And I am not trying to be controversial. Having said that, is it true that there's, there's just got to be some aspect to my personality that likes this stuff? There has to be. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but, but I don't... That's not how I see myself as a personality. I do not see myself as going out and seeking controversy. Uh, I guess I do have a strong sense of irritation at what sounds to me like people saying what they wish were true rather than what they know to be true. Right. See, so there, there is that element, I think, in me. Uh, so let me maybe answer it. Let me answer the question that I posed you and maybe modestly inter- interject myself amongst you two giants. I think what probably unites people who, who are irreverent to the orthodoxy is probably... So remember earlier when I discussed the, the story with my son and I said, oh, he, he gave an example that was consequentialist. And so one of the things that uh, when you talk about ethics, right, you have deontology, it's it is never okay to lie. That's a deontological statement. Consequentialist, it's okay to lie if you're trying to protect someone's life, right? Well, I argue that when it comes to the defense of the truth, then you have to put on very quickly your deontological hat. In other words, I never am willing to sacrifice a millimeter of the truth for consequentialist purposes. Much of life operates in the consequentialist world because very few things are deontological. One thing that is deontological is the truth with a capital T. So I think 
if we were to do an empirical study of people who are honey badgers, it's probably they score very highly. And there's a doctoral dissertation for you. They probably score very highly on, uh, you know, support of deontological ethics and the quest of truth. Because effectively, what are you doing when you do all the controversial stuff? You're saying, look, here is the empirical truth, and I'm not willing to back down because people are going to hate me. Whereas most people would say, I'm not willing to enter this arena. Truth be damned. Does, could that be what unites all the folks who stand up as honey badgers? Yeah, I think it is. And it used to be, a, I think, a much more widespread characteristic of academia. Yeah. Uh, and I to, one of my favorite stories about Dick Hernstein, my co-author on The Bell Curve, is uh, one night when we'd already had a couple of shots across our bow, even though the book hadn't been published yet. Or we, we, and we, I was up visiting him in Boston, and we were sitting at, late at night having a scotch, and I, I said something to the effect of, yeah, why are we doing this? And... Uh, and Dick said, you know, the day I got tenure at Harvard was the happiest day of my life. And because here I was going to get paid for the rest of my life to do what I love doing. And, and he said, but I, I, I said, what's the catch? And Dick asked himself that. And Dick said, the catch is you have to tell the truth. Boom. And, and that, that should be the reaction of everybody who's gotten tenure. I have an obligation to tell the truth. Exactly. And uh, that's, that's the essence of being an academician. So I guess I'd describe the word, uh, the honey badger thing. Um, I think that we go with Jonathan Haidt, who says that uh, the telos of the university is a search for truth. And you can't have more than one telos. The, you, you, have, you can have a social justice telos, or you can have a search for truth telos, but you can't have both. Right. And and so I think and here you and I can self congratulate ourselves. I think both of us are coming out of tradition, which is at the heart of what scholarship is supposed to mean. Amen. Amen. Last question. Uh, and maybe it's particularly fitting for someone who is at your stage in your life. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but you're a, you're a bit older than me. No, well, older, older, but still vibrant, still many years left in that brain of yours and body. Uh, so one of the in one of the last chapters of the book that I'm currently working on, it's a book about you know recipe for the good life and so on. I talk about you know someone who's lived a good life is someone who could kind of look back and hopefully they have as few regrets as possible. If, if you have none, that's even better. Uh, I think the Greeks talked about ataraxia, right? This kind of tranquility of mind, and I think that you know if if you are consumed by regretful feelings you know i should have done this i shouldn't have done that then then you don't have ataraxia and so uh, before i i pose the question to you uh let me contextualize it actually in one of my former uh professors of psychology in my graduate training thomas gilovich who pioneered the work of psychology of regret whereby he this uh, differentiated between regret due to action versus regret due to inaction. So regret due to action, I regretted that I cheated on my wife and this led to our divorce. Regret to inaction, I regret that I never pursued my dancing career and I went into my dad's accounting firm. I, I, I didn't manifest my deepest desires. Now, it turns out that for long-term issues, most people, their biggest regret is one of inaction. So having set that whole thing up, Dr. Murray, what are your regrets in life, if any? 
I have been incredibly lucky. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, if there's anything that drives me toward religion, and I'm increasingly drawn to religion, it is so many things have worked out so well for me. I kind of, there are things that seem to have been meant to be. But chief among these is not the books I've written. Um, it is I found my soulmate. <laughs> and yes. I, you know, everything else is rounding error, basically. Well, there are two things. You find somebody that, that is your life's companion that you're very happy with. Uh, the, uh, I use the word soulmate because that's what it feels like. And the second thing is you're doing something you love to do. And uh, so, so, so uh, the rest is rounding error. And so what I want to say to people who aspire to success in the same kind of field I've been in, uh, be careful what you wish for in terms of uh, public acclaim, even if it's positive. <clears throat> there are all sorts of ways that that can work to your disadvantage as well. Uh, it, it's, it's the, the fact is it's the process of doing this, of creating this stuff that is so deeply satisfying. And fame, fortune, and all the, all the cliches about fame and fortune and so forth are true. <laughs> they do not provide the deep lasting satisfactions. And so what are my regrets? I'll, 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 a trivial answer. I kind of regret I never went into the military. Oh, it was uh, during the World War. It was during the Vietnam War and I was the right age. I was over in Thailand at the time. Uh, but I kind of I, I look upon that as one of the rites of passage that I never did that, that I wish I did, except I might have got killed if I'd done it. Um, other than that, I'm 78, so I suppose I should still knock on wood. The Greeks say count no man happy until he is dead. <laughs> but for the first 78 years of my life, whether through dumb luck or something else, uh, I have reached age of 78, a very happy and contented man. You know, I, I so love that you talked about soulmate and do something that you love because, again, not, I'm not trying to plug the next book, but it's convergence of, of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a chapter on, you know, the, 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 the top two things you can do either to ensure that you'll be miserable or to ensure that you'll be happy is choosing the right mate and choosing the right you know profession. And my argument is that you're spending most of your waking time either doing the job that you do or amongst your family. If both of these are places of bliss or both of these are places of misery or whatever it is, then you're well on your way to either being a miserable person or not. And I share your sentiments about finding a soulmate. I'll, I'll tell a story here, which is in the book, but I don't think I've mentioned publicly. I, every morning, my wife and I go for a, a long walk, even in the brutal cold of the Montreal winter. And uh, we're always walking hand in hand. We've been we've been married. We've been together for 21 plus years. And so one day a, a gentleman stops us who who is the father of one of my daughter's dad. He's he knows he knows us through our daughter and he stops. Oh, nice to see you. And he goes, do you mind if I ask you something good? I said, sure. He goes, how do you do it? I say, how do I do what? He goes, how is it that I see you every day walking with your wife, you're holding hands, and you're speaking to each other, and you're smiling? I said, 
because I love her. <laughs> you know, and it was it was really that simple is that I was fortunate enough to find someone who's truly my best friend. And while I'm not sure that there is a res- an exact scientific recipe of how you ensure that you find it, you find that person, there are certainly scientific evidence of who you should not be choosing. And so you can certainly put the odds in your favor by looking out for certain things that either will increase your likelihood of finding a soulmate or not. So I'm delighted that you have found you. How long have you been together, you and your wife? Uh, we are on our 34th year now. We've been together now since 1981, got married in 1983. I will give you my short my shorthand term for uh, that I give as advice to young people. I'm listening. Uh, should, should Is this the one? And I say, what you want to do is marry someone who is your very best friend to whom you are also sexually attracted. That's it. That's the whole thing. Well, all, and even, by the way, of course, you will always, hopefully, you'll always be sexually attracted. But that early phase of the butterflies, that won't necessarily always be there. But the fact that I'd rather be with this person rather than going out with boys' night. See, I, I write in the book that I've never understood boys' night and girls' night. That, to me, would be an offense to my marriage. That, what, what does that mean? I, I don't want to be with you every Friday night. That doesn't make sense. The reality is I, you are my best friend. I want to hang out with you. So I agree. Best friend with whom you have sex with and you're in good shape. Uh, Charles, what a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad that we finally connected. Uh, are there any projects that you want to mention that you'd like to use this opportunity to promote that otherwise people are not aware of yet? No, I'm, uh, I am sort of retired. And I say sort of retired because there are things in the back of my mind that may eventually develop, but they may not. So, Got you. Okay, stay Just, on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Thank you so much. A real honor and a privilege to speak to you. Thank you for granting me so much time. Cheers, Charles. My pleasure. All right.